Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 18th, 2022, a Tuesday. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. Two themes of the show, which we come back to time and time again, is firstly, the crisis of democracy and journalism. Uh, we did a show last week with the Annenberg School scholar, Victor Picard, on whether American democracy can survive without reliable journalism. He has an interesting new book out called, appropriately, Democracy Without Journalism, confronting the misinformation society, the misinformation society in terms of his book and his perspective is based on United States. And they've also done lots of real crime murder stories. Uh, we did one a couple of weeks ago with Deborah Holt Larkin. She has a new book out called um, A Lovely Girl, The Murder uh, of a young woman in California in the 1950s. This was a murder that was resolved. The murderer or the organizer of the murder turned out to be her evil mother-in-law. Today, we're combining this um, with my guest, Catherine Corcoran. She has a new book out, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. Uh, it's a book about the unsolved 2012 murder of a journalist, Regina Martinez, in the Veracruz uh, area of Mexico. Uh, so it's different from uh, the, the Larkin book, and it's about a murder that's unresolved. Deborah is joining us. Uh, she's a journalist, so she's always moving. I'm not sure where she is. Not Deborah, Catherine. Uh, Catherine, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, one of the themes in the book is that I'm not sure if you personalize this murder, but you associate yourself with uh, the murdered woman. Did you ever meet her? Did you know her? I never met her. I talked to her on the phone twice. I was trying to hire her when I was the bureau chief for Mexico and Central America for the Associated Press. I, I tried to hire her to do a story for us um, because she was known as a very reputable, reliable journalist. And what what was it? What was the conversation like? What sense did you get of her when you spoke on the phone? It was very brief. Uh, we were in the middle of a huge story, um, and she was actually covering it for the magazine she worked for, Processo, which is why she was not able to uh, write the story for the Associated Press. So it was kind of a frantic moment where big news was breaking. Um, I was trying to find someone to cover it for us because we couldn't get out there right away and we needed someone on the ground right away. And so it was a very brief conversation because she was busy. I was busy. She said, let me think about it and call me back. I called her back. She said, really, I can't do it. So there were two very brief conversations that I mostly forgot about until six months later when I read that she had been murdered. And it, it really was sort of a sticking point of, um, a watershed moment for me, because even with that brief contact, I knew who she was, I knew her reputation. And it was, it was a point when so kind of the light bulb went on, because up to that point, there had been a lot of journalist killings, they were mostly crime reporters, they were people that the government 
repeatedly told us were not real journalists. They were being paid by narcos. They were being um, manipulated and they got crossways with their uh, bosses and there were no investigations. And, and there was this, what was really an epidemic going on without a real explanation. And then when she was killed, we knew, not just me, that it was an attempt to silence a journalist, to, to silence um, a critic. So tell me a little bit more about this woman, uh, Regina Martinez uh, Perez, who's become, uh, I don't know about a martyr, but certainly a symbol of, of, of much of what's going on in Mexico. What kind of reporting did she do? You mentioned that she worked for Prosecco. Um, did she focus on a particular area and did she get herself into trouble because she was too good a journalist? I would say yes and yes. Um, she was a journalist who was really ahead of her time. She started her career in the late 1980s at a time when most of Mexico's press was still pretty much controlled by the ruling party known as the PRI, who uh, ruled Mexico for seven decades as an authoritarian one-party system. And so when she became a journalist from the very beginning, she was a journalist who didn't accept the official version from the government. She went out on the street, she traveled to talk to people and find out what really happened. She looked at documents, she verified what she was reporting. She just didn't report hearsay or official reports. And, um, and, and she covered communities that were not covered at that time by the official press. And so her passion was really social justice kinds of issues and covering marginalized communities that didn't have a voice. So she covered indigenous communities and laborers and farm workers and, and women and opposition parties, all of the, all of the people at the time who didn't have voices in the, in the mainstream traditional press. And so that was really her, her passion. And because much of the marginalization and abuse was being done by the government, she was also very interested in government politics and um, political corruption. So she pretty much stayed to those themes throughout her career. I, you know, as you mentioned, there's been kind of a lionization of her since her death and people say she covered drug cartels. She actually did not cover drug cartels. Um, and I think that's a very important a key a piece of information for what happened to her and who was behind it. Um, so, 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 she, so, so say more on that. So, so the, the superficial response of most people who don't know much about Mexico would assume that this was a woman who got killed by the dr one drug cartel or other, but you're suggesting otherwise. No, I, I, absolutely. She did not. Um, what became apparent over time, as I mentioned, there, were, there was so much propaganda and mystery around these cases, we really didn't know. But what became apparent over time and what the Mexican journalists started saying is that they feared the government more than the drug cartels. And, um, and a, it became apparent that a lot of these cases, uh, hers included, had more to do with government corruption than anything going on by the drug cartels. Tell me a little bit more about the government that you suggest, at least, might have had some 
degree of responsibility or been involved in the killing of of uh, of Marti uh, of, Mar uh, of Regina Martinez Perez. What kind of government was it? And are there powerful figures within that government that, in your in your narrative, in in the in the in the mouth of the wolf, show up? Absolutely. Um, this was a state. So so Mexico is governed by one party for 71 years in a very um, highly centralized authoritarian system where the president basically controlled everything. The president appointed the state governors. Um, the president controlled the organized crime. It, it was a very centralized system. And um, at the time when, when Regina was, started her career in the late 80s, that system was already showing cracks and, and starting to fall apart. Um, in, in the year 2000, the PRI, the ruling party, was finally ousted from the presidency. And uh, so we're talking just a little more than 10 years away from this um, tectonic shift in politics in, in Mexico. And so, so, so the break apart was already there. And she covered that very much. She was very interested and, and gave voice to the opposition parties and and so she she was covering this political shift, but in Veracruz, where she worked, that um, state remained under the control of the PRI for many years after this breakup of the political system. And so the state was run pretty much like the old school authoritarian PRI model and um, where the, the governor controlled everything. And there was a very tight lid on any kind of criticism of the governor or the, the, his governing manner or system. And she, that was one of her favorite topics. She liked covering governors. She investigated uh, financial corruption. She um, investigated abuse of power abuse of funds. Um, she, um, that was like one of her, her passions. And that's what made her particularly uncomfortable to the state government because they weren't accustomed to having those kinds of stories printed. They were accustomed to running a system where they could quash those kinds of stories and, and control the, the, the coverage. But Veracruz is a very strategically important state in, in all of Mexico and especially to the presidency in Mexico City. It's, it was the third most populous state. I think it's fourth now, but um, it has a lot of voters. It has a lot of money. It has a lot of natural resources. It has the largest and most significant port in Mexico for incoming goods. And so this is, uh, and it runs it along um, one of the most well-traveled smuggling routes in the whole hemisphere from South America to the U.S. border. And so you could see that there was potential for a lot of um, illicit businesses. It's also a petroleum state and it's a petrochemical state. It's an agricultural state. So there's a lot of money coming in, a lot of contraband coming in, a lot of potential for corruption. And it was historically considered a very corrupt state. And Sounds so, like a sort of um, an American, uh, a, a non the Mexican version of Chinatown, corrupt administration, yep. lots of dirty money, lots of mystery, 
we did a show um we've done a number of shows on um on central american uh migration uh we did one uh with levi vonka an american journalist on the so-called southern border called border hacker how much of the 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 fuzziness the corruption in veracruz was associated with people smuggling and this whole endless tragedy of uh, attempts to get into the United States? Um, very much involved. It's right on the smuggling route um, from the, the Guatemala-Mexico border. As you go north, um, this route goes through Oaxaca, and then it goes through Veracruz up to Tamaulipas, and then Tamaulipas borders um it's Texas. So it's, it's very key on, on the migrant route. Um, it's very key on the drug route, the drug smuggling route. Mm. Uh, beyond that, any kind of contraband, fake goods, um, you know, fake designer purses, whatever, all of those kinds of goods were coming through the port. Um, any kind of, um, illegal enterprise. Um, they, there were reports of petrochemical companies actually laundering drug money. Mm -hmm. um, there's petroleum theft. Um, there's, there's all kinds of, of illicit businesses going on in that state um, because of its geographic location and also just because of the riches, the sort of the natural resources of the state, and um, so it, it's it's very key. It's um, the the pre the central party and the central government depended a lot on Veracruz for campaign money and, and funneling money to the president, and um, and so it's 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 a very rich state in, in many senses of. Of, of richness. And so um, it, 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 it did have a lot of dark activity going on for a very long time. And for a very long time, these forces like to stay under the radar. So back into the 1980s, there were clandestine airstrips and there were cocaine planes landing and there were all kinds of things going on and, and always rumored, but always kind of looked the other way. And of course, we all know that you can't have businesses like that operating without a sanction of the government. How much of this when you, you used to be the, the AP bureau chief in Mexico, how much of this did you know when you worked for AP and how much of it did your journalist colleagues and American and non-American newspapers know? Because for me, and I'm not a Mexico expert, this is all astonishing news. Veracruz was very much a quiet state for a long time. So it wasn't exposed. I mean, so in a, in a sense, one of the responsibilities of foreign journalists is to reveal what was happening. Right. And it didn't really catch our attention because our attention was on the other hot spots in Mexico that were exploding in violence because mainly because of drug trafficking. And so that would be along the border. That would be in the Western States. Um, you know, we covered the Southern border as well because of the migrant crisis. And so for the most part, um, I would say Veracruz was a very quiet state. It, it was a source of a lot of migrants to the United States and also a source of migrants 
to the border working in the maquilas because it is also a very poor state. Um, despite all the riches, there are a lot of poor people in Veracruz. And so, so there, was, there was that, but it wasn't one of the states that was really well known in the United States. It didn't have a lot of migration in the sense of states like um, Zacatecas or Michoacan or Sonora on the border, um, um, Ciudad Juarez, the places that, the border places that most Americans have heard of. So it didn't have that reputation. It's not really a vacation spot, even though it's- Well, Oaxaca, the, I've been to Oaxaca. It's a nice, very lovely place. Right. And I would say that Veracruz, I don't, it has, it has hundreds of miles of coastline, but it's not a beach state. Yeah. It's a very industrial state. There are some beaches there, but it's very industrial, the waterfront. Mm. There are some fantastic uh, tourist destinations in, in well, don't, don't tell everyone, Catherine, because then everyone will go. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, I want to come back. I wanted to, the, uh, let, let's just briefly talk about the, the, the drug issue again. You mentioned that you think that sometimes gets a bit overplayed. I was looking at Proceso, the magazine that um, Perez worked for. She has, they have a piece on fentanyl. Uh, I'm sure they have many pieces on fentanyl. We had a, a show last year with the journalist Sam Quinones. I'm sure you're familiar with his yeah. work, uh, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. He suggested on the show that much of the manufacturer of fentanyl now is in Mexico. Um in the context of Veracruz, would have that been organized through the government rather than through gangs? Is that your argument about drugs? Is that they're, of course, illicit, but they tend to be controlled by the government rather than gangs? It, it's a combination, basically. And, and fentanyl is not a big product in Veracruz. Veracruz, because of its geographic location, is much more a transit state okay. as opposed to a production state. Um, the fentanyl is ma made more in the West and, and in the Northwest along the border. And I don't mean to downplay it. I mean, it's a huge, um, drug trafficking is a huge issue in Mexico. It's still a huge cause of a lot of the violence. It's, um, you know, feeding the biggest consumer market for illicit drugs. So there's a lot of pull from the United States and, and fentanyl is now a drug that is devastating the United States. Um, it's very easy to produce, it's very easy to transport and that's why it's become such a big problem so fast. But what happened in Veracruz was more, it was earlier in the story of, of drug trafficking. It was mm. when drug trafficking went from marijuana to cocaine and people just made exponential amounts of money compared to what they were making by dealing uh, marijuana. And so when the cocaine started coming through Mexico from um, South America, that was a well-used route for other things already. And so that became one of the routes. And the port was very key and very strategic for for whatever cartel to control. And so what happened in, in Veracruz is when the, when Mexico shifted to competitive elections, all of a sudden um, candidates needed money to win elections and drug cartels needed control of territory 
or needed some deals to let their merchandise pass. And all that under the old authoritarian system was handled by the president in a very centralized way, as I mentioned. And now it fell, it decentralized just like all the political power in Mexico did. And so it left these governors or even mayors, very local politicians, the ability to cut their own deals with organized crime. So it's and, kind of like the, the democratization of crime, if you like. Exactly. It was definitely an unintended consequence of democracy in, in Mexico. And so these, these cartels that had the money and needed protection could cut a, cut a deal with the politician who needed money but could offer protection. And so from there... Um, the whole organized crime system morphed into these local governments could cut whatever deals they wanted. Sometimes they collaborated. Sometimes you couldn't tell the difference between the narcos and the government. Sometimes they said, we'll leave you alone and let you pass if you leave us alone. But another phenomenon that happened was that the governments became the criminal enterprises themselves. And that's what happened in Veracruz. Um, there was always corruption. There was always malfeasance. Um, Regina Martinez covered a lot of it. But with this morphing of, of, of what, what I call criminal governments, where the government became the criminal enterprise, that was the point when reporting about it became particularly dangerous because there were, first of all, just millions, if not billions of dollars were involved in what people were capable of earning. And also this idea that the government was actually conducting the um, illegal businesses and, the, and, and, um, and using the powers of the government to do that, the police forces, the justice mm. system, the, the public treasury, um, that... Veracruz was one of the early examples of that complete conversion to where right. the government itself was the criminal. Right. It's, the, the, the plot thickens, uh, Catherine. Uh, we did a show with Ada Farah um, on her prize-winning book, uh, Cuba and American History, and we headlined it, how the 300-year-old Cuban-American relationship could have been written by a Latin American novelist. Not all Latin American novelists are, of course, the same. The story that you're describing could have also been written by a magical realist, this, this convergence, this confusion of organized crime and government, um, this absence of rules, this ubiquity of violence and uncertainty, the disappearance of truth as a very strong, I wouldn't say fictional element, but for you as a journalist, um, what did you have to do in terms of telling this story to avoid sounding yourself like a Latin American novelist? <laughs> it was very difficult. Um, it, it is very difficult to pin down the truth in investigating things in Mexico. And so when, um, when this sort of criminal morphing or change happened, Veracruz became a very violent state. And all of a sudden we were looking at it like, what is going on there? And it turned out that there were various cartels warring for control of the port and these uh, critical smuggling routes. And then the governments, the government, depending on the administration, would cut deals with, with these warring um, 
factions or warring cartels. And so the state just exploded in violence. It also exploded in journalist killings. And so all of a sudden we were going there all the time. I mean, before, before 2010, we went to Veracruz to cover hurricanes mainly mm. um, and, and um, or to, to maybe write about tourism. And um, so, so it was very baffling to us initially without any uh, background or context of what was really going on behind the scenes that this state, this very quiet state had suddenly exploded. And so in covering that, that started, that put me on the path of understanding of the dynamics that were going on um, that, that created this, this environment. And the journalists in the environment, including um, Regina Martinez, they were also shocked because right. they had always already, or always had been, harassed, spied on, followed in the old pre-political sense where it was more like a warning. It was like, we're watching you. You better stay in line. If people stepped out of line, there were ways to warn them that they better get back into line. There wasn't, there weren't these massive killings. So it's like going from uh, Tsarist Russia to Stalin's Russia or something. Exactly. And so, so what, happened was the journalists themselves saw the environment changing. It felt very different. It felt very dangerous, but they didn't really have a way to measure exactly how bad it was getting. It felt different, but they, but because they were so accustomed in, in a way to the yeah. harassment, they really didn't know where the lines were. And uh, yeah, but, but uh, my question was not about other journalists, about you and the writing of this book. Um, how, how close, and I don't want you to give away all the, the secrets in the book. It's a wonderful book and then a very, very important story. Did you get close or do you feel you got close to figuring out who, who murdered uh, Regina Martinez Perez? Well, I would say I found a, 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 a line of investigation that was never taken I am not um, a detective. I can't subpoena people. I couldn't see the evidence. I tried. I, I made um, transparency requests, what you what we would call FOIAs in the United States, to get evidence, and they were all denied. Um, so without that kind of evidence, I can't say who did it. But I can say that there are some um, – I uncovered some interesting evidence that I think – could very much lead to a line of inquiry by the authorities who are charged with investigating yeah. these. Uh, you, you also work with uh, Kinto Elemento Lab on some research projects. You're no longer full-time with AP. Um, is the book being translated into Spanish? And do you expect it to have any impact in the Mexican market? I'm sure there would be many avid readers, or there will be even if it's not translated. Well, again, that's kind of a publishing decision that we haven't gotten to yet. The, the, the foreign rights always come after the publication in English. Um, mm. So so that you, uh, let, let me let me put the question more honestly. Uh, are there uh, Mexican publishers with the cojones to publish this kind of book? I think there are. And we'll definitely explore that. I, um, I hope I, so. I mean, it would be a great shame if, if this book doesn't come out for the domestic market 
Well, that will definitely be a step down the road that, that we'll, be, we'll, we'll be looking at. Um, but in terms of um, in terms of how I reported this, um, I had to be very, very careful and I had to stay very much under the radar mm. um, so that I would not call attention. Not, I wasn't concerned so much for me, but I was concerned for the people that I was interviewing. Mm. I really had to keep, I couldn't blow their cover. So I had you feel, to- Do you feel safe now, Catherine, having written this book and having given giving public interviews like this? And generally, yes. I mean, I um, I always take my safety precautions um, in in handling sensitive subjects like this, as as all reporters do. In in my situation, um, I again, as I said, um, I've always been more concerned about the people who spoke to me and the people who did speak to me end up being named. They wanted to be named. They wanted, they got to the point where they said, no, I want this out there. I want this story told. They couldn't do it themselves because of security reasons. And so I think the people in the book are the really brave people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I acknowledge that. Well, what about the connection with democracy and this story? One of my friends is Maria Ressa, of course, a very brave Filipino journalist who just won the Nobel prize. Um, she's argued for many years about the relationship between the disappearance of truth, particularly associated with social media and the crisis or collapse or disappearance of democracy in, in the Philippines. What's your broader analysis of the existence or non-existence of democracy in Mexico in the context of the kind of story you're telling? Well, I think uh, the problem is that there's an incomplete democracy in, in Mexico. So even though the political system changed in terms of um, alternating parties and elections, the institutions didn't change to, to support or to be the pillars of that democracy. The institutions very much function in the old authoritarian way, which is to to support in the service of the people in power, not in the service of the citizens. And so without that complete transition, it's been easy with, in the case of Veracruz, after they killed Regina Martinez, the, the press either fled the state or stopped publishing anything controversial as self-censorship. And so it was very easy for them to, to shut down the press because of the impunity there was no backup for anyone who tried to go against the system. The, the, the impunity was rampant. Right. And well, what about the, the, the new people running, running the show in Mexico? Joe Biden is meeting Mexico's current president, uh, uh, Obrador, uh, I think it's today. I mean, is he a different breed, this type of politician, from the kinds of politicians who were around during the killing of Regina Martinez Perez? Has Mexico changed or is it still pretty much the same kind of centralized or neo-authoritarian violent uh, state? Um, it's actually, it, 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 as, as I mentioned, the power has dispersed and, and, it's, and it's very regionalized. And I think uh, Lopez Obrador, who originally was a member of the PRI, then started two of his own parties. He still operates in that idea that a more centralized control, like kind of going back to the past would be better for Mexico. To well, have you wouldn't agree with that, I assume, would you? 
Actually, I don't. The other thing is he is not a man. It, the, the pre was not about strengthening institutions and nor is he. He is very much a populist, a, a, a politician of personality where he thinks that he should have the control to fix everything. And so he's not in favor of an independent justice system and he's not in favor of checks and balances. And he, he very much wants to go back to the old model of a, of a centralized control, because if you look at those years, there wasn't this rampant violence. But but rampant- he were, I mean, if he got what he wanted, would he sort of just re- resurrect that centralized violent authoritarianism of, of the 1980s or the 2000s? I, I think, I mean, it wasn't violent like it is now. I think that's one of the points. There was much more control. Um, the pre was able to make the trains run on time and the... Well, Mussolini and, did that, didn't necessarily grow help. The, grow the economy, despite all the human rights violations and the repression and the, all that, they were still able to accomplish some things and some order in the country. And I think, I think at, at his heart, he believes that's the way to restore order. Um, yeah, clearly he's not, I mean, you're not a big fan of his. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, Regina Martinez Perez isn't around. Are there still some good guys, good parties, good ideologies around in Mexico that you think would offer a way forward rather than go back to the centralized pre-system in Mexico today, Catherine? At this point, no, <laughs> to be honest. I don't see any forward thinkers. I see it. I see no a one, nothing. I, I see a political system much like ours that is um, that is locked in polarization and political infighting. I, I don't see any big leaders pushing the way forward. I see if there are leaders pushing the way forward, there are a lot of obstacles to letting them rise to the top because of political infighting. Um, I really don't see that because because um, Mexico has pretty much tried everything since they became democratic. The the public has elected every party to see if maybe that party could fix it. They let the pre come back to see if they could fix it. Lope, Lopez Obrador has a brand new party called Morena, but Morena is filled with old priestas and old characters. I mean, it's it's the same old people under a new name. And so for that reason, I, I really don't see um, politically any enlightened leadership in Mexico right now. Now, well, you've come the full circle. You ended the book or you, in the book you talk about... Um... You, I'm quoting you, my country started to look more like Mexico. So Mexico and America get confused. And in fact, looking at the headlines today, just to do some research before this conversation, so many of the headlines, something from The Guardian about how Texan gun laws are allowing Mexican cartels to arm themselves to the teeth. Why? And this is from Politico, why a top official at a top gun control group left to become an agent of Mexico. Are the histories of the United States and Mexico becoming so intertwined that they're essentially inseparable now, Catherine? Oh, they're very inseparable. And I think that's something that Americans don't really understand how intertwined we are. And so they succumb to this rhetoric about invasions and walls and keep them out. I mean, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Our two countries are so intertwined in, in the sense of, of people, commerce, security, 
there is really there is no way nor any reason to separate Mexico from the United States. And I think the more that people recognize that, the more modern our own policies will be in our attitudes toward Mexico. Well, it makes it a good, it means that Latin American literature and North American literature should be the same thing. Your, your book got a wonderful review in the New York Times by, um, uh, by uh, Mark, uh, sorry, by Mark, uh, ba uh, uh, by Mark, Bowden, um, who's the author of The Steel, uh, a very important book about the 2020 election, in right. which he suggests that the American political system held up against people trying to destroy democracy. So I, I'm not sure, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of Mark, but I'm, I'm not sure he would agree that the two systems have become identical. The American democratic system is more resilient, isn't it? Or, 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 or do oh, you well, think I that uh, that's wrong? I didn't mean to imply that the political systems had become identical. They have not, they know by not by any means. I'm talking about the relationship between the two countries is so intertwined. And as you point out, our guns are aiding their drug trafficking as well as our markets and our, but there are a lot of other positive ways the countries are intertwined. And so this idea of like shutting down the border is just, makes absolutely no sense in any context. What I'm talking, but in terms of political systems, we hope, we think ours can be more resilient, but a lot of us are really worried right now. And one mm. of the tactics being used by the people who would like to move to a more authoritarian model is to attack the press and to call us the enemy of the people, which is basically what happened in Veracruz and in Mexico. And so that to me, the press has always been criticized and sometimes rightly so, but it was always considered a part of our political system, an important pillar, the fourth estate. And now we have voices that are saying, no, shut it down, ignore them, they're corrupt. And those to me are voices of control, much like in other countries, including Mexico, where the, the, the politicians want you to only listen to them. They want you to, they want to, actively limit the kind of information that you have access to. And we're seeing that all over our country right now. And I think right. it's very and if you're right. A society without truth is a scary place to live. Although, I mean, you go backwards and forwards between the United States and Mexico. I assume that Mexico is still a scarier place to live than the United States. Well, in the United States, we're not anywhere in terms of journalism and the free press and, and practicing journalism. We're not anywhere near where they are, but the erosion has already started. We now have an official count of attacks on journalists in the United States that didn't exist five or six years ago because we didn't need one. I mean, in my long career in journalism, I never imagined that I would see the things I'm seeing now in my own country where a journalist covering a story becomes the target there were always dangers for journalists covering protests or covering natural disasters, but never because they were the target of the vitriol. And that has become very common now. And, and, and American journalists have to think and prepare themselves for, for those kinds of incidents in a way that the, they just didn't exist before. And so I think by writing this book and showing the worst case scenario, I wanna ask the United States is this the route we want to go 
with this um, attacking and discrediting and trying to silence the press? Is that really what we want in our society? Is that a good thing? Because then the information, because the target is not us. We're the, we're the first line of attack. The target is not us. The target is the citizenry and the ability, as, as the government in Veracruz did, the ability to control the citizenry to the point where they can operate with impunity and actually prey on their own citizens who elected them to protect them. That's mm. ultimately what happened there. That's and good stuff. Um, and uh, I, I'm not suggesting, Catherine, that you are Regina Martinez Perez, but you ha seem to have a similar message in some way. And the book, I think, is doubly important, both as a book about the tragedy of the disappearance of the free press, maybe it never existed in Mexico, uh, in the mouth of the wolf and as a warning to what might happen in America if certain people get control. So congratulations on the book. It's already getting great reviews. I think it's going to be one of the, the books of the year for journalism, uh, about especially about uh, Latin America. So congratulations, Catherine. What other books would you suggest? So many books actually on this subject, both historically and contemporary. What, what, what writers have inspired you? Well, um, I have... I... I other narrative nonfiction writers um, I enjoy very much. Um, uh, writers like um, Patrick Radden Keefe and mm. David Gann. And, um, but I have to say in terms of what I'm reading, it tends to be very off topic when I'm immersed in a book like this. Um, so my recent books have purposely not been that genre as I wanted to get in touch with my own voice and have no interferences. Um, but there are plenty of, of just excellent mm. nonfiction. So what have you been books. reading, Catherine? What books do you really enjoy? So, so I, uh, it's very eclectic. So one of the books I read recently and just really enjoyed was Just Kids by Patti Smith. Because oh, I yeah, that's a great it. book. Great book. Um, uh, the Lost Children Archive by, Louis, um, by Valeria Luiselli. Um, I kind of went back and decided to read the books that I, the good, the great books that I had missed along the way, like Just Kids. I didn't read it when it came out. I actually had never read A Hundred Years of Solitude. So I read mm, that recently. Yeah. Um, I, I'm now reading another Latin American classic that I had never read, um, The Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño. Um, so I think w while I want to keep my writing head focused in a particular genre, my reading turns to be whatever that's not. And and then I think about, oh, well, what great books have I missed along the way? And and then I'll I'll get into um, uh, looking for the the missing pieces in my <laughs> reading list. 